Brothers and sisters, why in the world would we ever fear what this world or what man can do to us? We'll spend a little bit of time talking about Ahab's blame shifting. So Ahab saw Elijah. Ahab said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? So Ahab accuses Elijah, of course, of being, you're the, you're the cause of all this, Ahab. I mean, I'm sorry, Elijah, which in a sense he was because he was the one who proclaimed the drought. So you're the cause of all this. You're the troubler of Israel. Ahab shifts the blame from where it really lies, which is on himself and on his wife and on these false prophets and all this, this Baal worship. He shifts the blame for the consequences of sin. He shifts it onto the one who has no responsibility, no blame for that. So this is something that the the fallen human race, we, we have done this since the beginning. In fact, one of the, one of the very first, if not the first thing that fallen man ever did after we fell was what? Shift the blame. It started with, with Adam. It was that woman, God. And then it continued right to her. It was, it was the serpent. So we, this is how we began, shifting blame. And we've done it ever since. Fallen man and fallen woman. We have this, this strong impulse in our heart to shift the blame away from ourselves, And this is exactly what Ahab does. He shifts the blame, but he shifts it not just to anybody. He shifts it to the one who is not just least responsible for this, but he shifts it to the only hope. He shifts it to the one that, that didn't bring the drought upon them, but the only one who really speaks for God, who can bring forgiveness and repentance to the land. So he shifts it from the one who should be blamed himself, to the one who deserves it least of all. This is again, this is the way of the world. We should expect this. We we should expect blame shifting. We should expect as followers of Jesus to be blamed for what we're not to blame for. This has been the way of the Christian since the beginning. The beginning of God's people, God's people have always been those who have been blamed for what they didn't cause, what there wasn't, it wasn't their responsibility. That's Always been how it has, how it's been since since even the days of the Israelite slaves. Remember how the Israelite slaves were they were blamed. The Pharaoh said it's because they're idle. They need more work. They need less straw. You know they're the ones to blame for all these plagues and everything. They went from there to to David. Remember how David was blamed. Saul blamed David for the consequences of Saul's sin. And it just goes on from there. Jesus was blamed by the Pharisees. The Pharisees blamed Jesus for the problems in the nation when it was really the consequences of their sin. It goes on from there to Paul. Remember how Paul was twice blamed for riots? That he had nothing to do with that. That wasn't him. And then even in the early church, remember how I'm sure you probably have read or heard the story of how the emperor Nero burned down Rome and blamed the Christians. And it goes from there on and on. The reformers were blamed for all the problems in the church. The, we get to the, the French Revolution and the French Revolution was just this great big blaming of Christians for all the problems that France was having. It's always been this way. Now, if you have your ear to the ground at all right now, 
then you are recognizing that even though this has sort of always been this way, that Christians have always been blamed for the consequences of society's sin, if you've got your ear to the ground right now, you're realizing that this is ramping up right now. And this is really uh, gaining traction, gaining speed, gaining momentum. And if you're listening to the culture around you, then you're hearing more and more voices saying something to this effect. The real problem today is those Christians. Maybe not those words, but that's the meaning. The real problem of society is those Christians with their oppressive sexual values, with their uh, patriarchal views of family, with their... Uh, oppressive views of LGBTQ issues and gender questions and all these sorts of things. If you're listening, you're hearing those voices multiplying right now to the effect that Christians are receiving the blame for the consequences of the society's sin around us. This is nothing new. You should expect this. Jesus experienced it. Every believer who's ever lived has experienced this. You should expect this, but the thing to see and recognize right now is how this is gaining speed and gaining more and more acceptance in the society around us and more and more voices are starting to echo this same mantra that the real problem in modern society are those who have these repressive views or these repressive values, if we can free ourselves from that, then many of our problems will be alleviated. If you look right now to many, uh, say, Western European countries or uh, UK, then you see this maybe six or seven steps ahead of where we are right now. But you see that loud and clear right now in Western European countries that those who hold to a traditional biblical ethic are now widely regarded as you are the problem. You're not, you're not part of the solution. You're not the one through which light can come. You instead are the problem. Elijah is identified by Ahab as the problem. You're the problem. But also notice something else. Notice, and you kind of have to read between the words here, read between the lines a little bit. Notice how Elijah is hated by Ahab. Can't you just imagine Ahab? I sort of picture him as a fat guy. And he's just as mad as he can be right now. Elijah is in his presence again, and he's so angry. You snake, you viper, you. He's just has this, I think, rage toward him, this anger toward him. Elijah is the object of his hatred. So that's another thing we should expect. As followers of Christ, we expect to be blamed for that which is not to be blamed on us, but we're also expected to be hated. Jesus himself said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. However, the hatred of the world around us is nothing to fear. And it's nothing to lament. Jesus said the hatred of the world is something to rejoice. Look at his words in Luke chapter 6. Blessed are you when people hate you. Can you imagine Jesus 
being here right now and saying that, and we'd, we'd never read that verse before. We weren't familiar with that whatsoever. And can you imagine Jesus just saying, you know, blessed are you when people hate you. What? Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice that day, for so their fathers did to the prophets and so they're doing to Elijah here. The hatred of the world is not to be feared. The hatred of the world is a means of encouragement to us. It identifies us with our Messiah. He was hated before we were hated. And the reason we are hated is because of Him. The reason we are hated is because the world hates Him and they look at us and they see Him. And that's something of of great, great encouragement. If you've ever experienced that th- those occasions, maybe you've had that that time in your life where there was there was somebody, an acquaintance, a coworker, or something in your life who just had this unreasonable hatred for you, and you couldn't figure it out. And then the more this sort of went on, you sort of figured out, wait a minute, they hate all Christians, and so they don't hate me; they hate me because I'm a Christian. Wow, that's a blessing. That is a blessing. So he hates Elijah, but then look at Elijah's boldness. Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Verse 18. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, I'm kind of shocked that the ESV has Baals because Baals is not the plural of Baal. It's really Balaam. If you're in the King James, the King James gets the plural right, it's Balaam. Or to pronounce it properly, it's Baalim. But anyway, you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and you followed the Baalim, you followed the Baals. I'm not the trouble of Israel. You are. Can you, can you hear in this interchange, can you hear the, the boldness of the one again who will come in the spirit of Elijah? The spirit of Elijah, whom John, whom Jesus says, John the baptizer is here in the spirit of Elijah. And what was characteristic of John the baptizer? Was it not his boldness to call King Herod out on his sin of taking his brother's wife? And so there's something about that spirit of Elijah that has, has to do with a certain boldness, with a certain willingness to call out the most powerful person for their own personal sin. So he turns this back on onto Elijah. He says, I'm, I'm not the one. I, I'm, I'm telling you, you're the one. Look at this quote in your notes from uh, Rob, uh, Robert M. McChain. The man who loves you most is the man who tells you the most truth about yourself. Isn't that true? We should, I think, add a, maybe a caveat to the end of that. The man who loves you most is the one who is the man who tells you the most truth about yourself in love. Because you can tell people truth about themselves and not do it in love. But the one who tells you the most truth about yourself, that's the one who loves you most. Ahab speaks lies about Elijah. Ahab hates Elijah. Elijah speaks truth about Ahab. You're the one, Ahab. It's your sin. So Elijah speaks boldly of this truth back to him. It's not me. You are the one. But then let's keep going as we notice Ahab's passivity. I started to say, and you notice, I started to say Ahab's docility, but then I, I figured you'd make fun of me for using that word. But Ahab's passivity. He said, he answers, I've not troubled, but you have, you and your father's house, because you've abandoned the commandments and followed the Baals. Now verse 19. 
Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Did you notice a reversal of roles there? Elijah is now playing the part of the king. Elijah is now the one giving the commands. He's telling Ahab, this is what you're going to do. You're going to gather these 950 or 850 prophets, if I can add, these 850 prophets, and you're going to meet me on Mount Carmel. And you're going to make this announcement to the people, and they're all going to gather there, and you're going to do this. And he probably went on to tell them the time and the place and exactly when to do it and, and how to show up and all this. And, and then notice in verse 20, so Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered. There's a pattern that we've noticed in the whole story, and that pattern is God speaks to Elijah, and the very next phrase is that Elijah did it. Now we see the same pattern with Elijah speaking, and the very next phrase is, and Ahab did it. Isn't that a remarkable turnaround? Isn't that a remarkable turn of events? This is the man who has declared to the entire known world around him, we need to find this man Elijah and bring him to me. I'm going to kill him. Did you notice in the passage from last week that, that Ahab made all the nations around him take an oath that they couldn't find Elijah? Did you notice that in the passage? That, that when, when they would tell Ahab, he's not here, we can't find him, Ahab would say, swear to it. And so the whole world knows that Ahab is going to kill Elijah, or so he's vowed to. Now Elijah stands before him, and not only does Ahab not kill him, Ahab obeys him. Can you imagine the crow that Elijah or that Ahab is now going to eat? Because he's ran off his mouth to everybody that he's going to kill this guy. And now all these people are going to show up at Mount Carmel and there's going to be Ahab. We'll get to this next week. There's going to be Ahab and there's going to be Elijah. And Ahab's not going to be swinging a sword or, or shooting an arrow or commanding him to be seized. And all of Israel is going to know. Wait, didn't you say, isn't that the guy you said you're going to kill? Why are you not? Ahab has completely now changed demeanor. You know what I think is going on? I think two things, at least two things are going on. First of all, I think Ahab is afraid of Elijah. I think Ahab fears Elijah now. You know, it's one thing to be hunting somebody, saying that you're going to kill him, and then you find him hiding somewhere. But it's another thing altogether to to claim that you're hunting somebody down, to find out they're hunting you. Elijah's not the hunted one in the story. Ahab was the hunted one because Elijah said, go tell him I'm coming to him. That, that probably threw Ahab off base just a little bit. Wait a minute. I'm supposed to be chasing you down. Now you're looking for me. That probably threw him off base just a little bit. But Elijah's courage... The Spirit of the Lord that rests on Elijah, I think Ahab is afraid of this man, which would be totally in keeping with many of the other passages of Scripture that we can think about. Like, for example, 
How Felix was said to be afraid of Paul, or Felix feared Paul in Acts chapter 24, or John chapter 19, how Pilate is, is said to be afraid of Jesus, or John the baptizer, we keep coming back to him, the spirit of Elijah, John the baptizer, where we read in Mark chapter 6, verse 20, that Herod feared him. So I think, first of all, Ahab, when you get down to it, he's really afraid of, of Elijah at this point. Here's this man, Elijah. He's supposed to be dead. Half, half of Israel is dead, but then here he is. Not only is he not dead, but he's well-fed. Nobody else in the land is well-fed right now, except probably Ahab and maybe the Baal prophets. But here's this man, Elijah, that's been in hiding for three years. He looks well-fed and he's looking for me. But then the other thing that I think is going on, and this is going to be clear to see, is God's sovereign control over this whole situation. So when, when we read the commentators about this passage, the question is, why did Ahab obey Elijah? Why, why did Ahab concede to do what Elijah told him to do? And most of the commentators are going to take the position that Elijah or that uh, Ahab was desperate. People were dying. The land was dying. There's been this drought. Elijah did say that he would bring rain. So I got nothing else to do. I got no other choice. So Ahab's desperate. And he's just thinking, well, maybe if I just do what this guy says, maybe he really does have the ability to bring rain and maybe he'll do that. Notice Elijah didn't tell Ahab what God told him, that he's there to bring rain. So most commentators will say, well, Ahab's just desperate. And I don't buy that. I think that clearly what's happening in this passage is God is absolutely sovereignly directing everything about this. And God has his hand on Ahab's heart, even though Ahab hates God. And God is directing Ahab to do what God wants Ahab to do. God wants Ahab to show up. He wants the prophets of Baal to show up so that he can be glorified. And so God is sovereignly directing this. In your notes here, I put together just a, just a list. This is a partial list of all the times that Scripture says to us that God is directing the affairs of kings and rulers. Just take a look with me. Genesis chapter 20, how uh, God said to Abimelech in a dream, it was I that kept you from sinning. Remember, uh, Abraham and Sarah go down to Egypt and Abraham to pretends that Sarah's just his sister. And God says, it was me who kept you from sinning against Sarah. Exodus chapter 4, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Deuteronomy 28, the Lord will cause you to be, to be defeated before your enemies. The Spirit of the Lord began to stir Samson in Judges chapter 13. And the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon. First Chronicles, so the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Paul, king of Assyria. 2 Chronicles 21, the Lord stirred up against Jeroboam, or I'm sorry, Jer Jeroboam, the anger of Philistines and the Arabians. Ezra, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Isaiah 13, behold, I'm stirring up the Medes against them. Ezekiel 16, I made you flourish like the plant of the field. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring against Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Habakkuk, 
1 verse 6, For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. Do you see? This is just a partial representation, not of how God directs people, but how God directs nations and kings. And do you see just how God declares I have absolute control over what happens in my world? God is directing Ahab to this place. God is directing Ahab. He's preventing Ahab from from taking action against Elijah and He's causing Ahab to, to acquiesce and to obey. Brothers and sisters, why in the world would we ever fear what this world or what man can do to us? Why would we ever fear what creation can do or what man can do to us when our God says so specifically and so clearly and so repetitively, it is I that directs the affairs of men. I am the one who puts kings and queens in their place. I am the one who takes kings and queens off of their place. And I am the one who controls what they do in the meantime. Why would we ever fear what creation could do or what people could do? Look with me at Isaiah 51 and verse 12. God says, I am He who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? Do you kind of hear the, the indignant nature of God's God's tone of voice right there? It's like God is indignant about it. You mean to tell me that you're afraid of people? When you know me, and you know me to be the God of comfort, you know me to be the God who comforts you, who cares for you, You know me to be the sovereign God that I am, and yet you're afraid of people? It's like God saying, who do you think you are? To scorn my name like that, having known me and fearing humans. Why would we be afraid of what this world can do to us? Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.